are in Luke 3, we're looking at John the Baptist. He's doing the work of preparing the way for Jesus. And part of that involves telling people to repent and showing them what that meant in their life because you're not ready for Jesus until you're ready to change. John's not a person who's bashful about telling people exactly how the word applies in their specific situation. But he's also got things to say about Jesus. If he's preparing the way for Jesus, it makes sense that he's going to need to talk about Jesus himself. So would somebody read Luke 3, verses 15 to 20? Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, also he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison. So, the people are actually wondering if John himself might be the Messiah, uh, which he's quick to let them know that's not the case, as he tells them about the Messiah that's coming. And really, he stresses how much greater Jesus is. And he does that in at least three ways right here. One is, I'm not even worthy to uh, untie the thong of the sandal. You know... Um, Jewish slaves were not expected to untie the shoes of their master. That was considered to be a task too lowly for them to do. Only non-Jewish slaves could be expected to do that. And, uh, you know, a disciple was considered not, he didn't have to do that for his, his, his teacher, his rabbi, because that was considered too lowly. Uh, so, you know, if John's not even worthy to do what a Jewish slave found it too demeaning to do for their master, that's just the nth degree of saying how much more superior Jesus is than John. The second thing he says is that he brings a better baptism. I baptize you with water, but the one's coming after me, and I'm not fit. To, uh, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he brings a better baptism. Um, and, and that we'll talk about more in a minute, but that clearly is another dimension from what John is doing. John can only baptize with water and whatever it's saying that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, that's clearly saying he's doing something much greater. And then in verse 17, he's burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire, the kind of final irreversible punishment, but that means he's the judge. And, uh, so that that shows you his greatness. John 5, when Jesus wanted to talk about how he was equal to the Father, God had committed all judgment to the Son. John 5, long about 21 to 23. Um, so, you know, Jesus is greater than John in so many ways, and it really gets us ready for Jesus to really listen to him, pay attention to him, and be impressed by him. He's no ordinary person. Um and in this, he said a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, verse 18 shows that. This is, we've just been treated to a specimen, you know, a sample of uh, John's preaching. And then in 19 and 20, 
when Herod was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other wicked things Herod had done, he, he climaxed his evils by locking John up in prison. Now, I think this is the kind of thing Luke does. He's tying up the John story before he moves on to Jesus. This is out of chronological order. Actually, John and Jesus were parallel in their ministries for a while, but we're just moving John off the stage by telling us, you know, what else happens to John. And we kind of finish up the narrative about him, and then we turn to the things that Jesus does in his ministry. So this is more of a topical organization, not a chronological organization. But it's interesting that John is so willing to rebuke and the governor, uh, King Herod, that had a great deal of power and authority. And uh, he's willing to rebuke him about his marriage, which is about as, uh, you know, um, invasive as it gets. Uh, you know, most people would not like for you to talk about their marriage. And, and that's just one of the things. I mean, he rebukes him for other wicked things that he's done as well. And, uh, you know, we, we cower before our neighbor and are afraid to speak about Jesus. And John would go to the king, or governor, he'd like to be called king, and, and tell him he wasn't, didn't have the right to be married to that woman and rebuke him for his other evil deeds. And so I think Herod sort of views John as a threat to the public order and certainly a personal embarrassment. He doesn't want his sin exposed. So the epitome of his evil career is when he adds to his list of crimes, locking John up in prison. And of course, as we know from the other gospels, eventually killing him. That wasn't really his idea, but he did it. Um, so, you know, he's the, he's a, a model of the guy who commits the sin and then imprisons the rebuker. You know, what, what, what's the problem here? It's not John pointing out what he's done wrong. It's that Herod did the wrong things. But we often don't like for somebody to point out what we've done wrong, even though they're being truthful. And we want to blame them for the wrong we've done. So that's kind of what Herod does. Herod here is Herod, the son of Herod the Great that that killed the babies around Bethlehem. And uh, pretty much need a scorecard to keep all the Herods straight and their interrelationships and all that. But uh, uh, that's, that's who this Herod is. I'm going to talk some more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. Uh, but before I do that, do you have some comments and questions about this section? All right. Um, well, I'm going to uh, do an excursus on the Holy Spirit here a little bit, uh, because I think this is a good spot to uh, kind of uh, talk about, you know, he says that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that, you know, certainly raises the question, what is that talking about and what does that mean for us? And what I believe is that all believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I want to try to prove that. Um, I'm going to summarize some of these things. We're not going to look at all the passages. I will look at a few. But, but first of all, I think there was an Old Testament expectation that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Joel 2 says that. Isaiah 32 says that. Ezekiel talks about that several times. Zechariah 12.10 says that. I would point out particularly Isaiah 44 as a, as a model passage that really shows the role of the Holy Spirit in the Messianic Kingdom. I think, I think the prophets suggest that in the day of the Messiah, 
the spirit coming upon all believers was an integral part of that. So Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call in the name of Jacob, and so forth. So God is going to pour out his spirit on his offspring, and they're going to be, be the Lord's. They're going to be his people, identified by them receiving the spirit. In the New Testament, it seems to me that the gospel era is seen as the era of the spirit. You see that all over the place, but Second Corinthians 3 is a good passage where he almost just puts the spirit for the whole gospel message, since the gospel message is so involved with the work and role of the Holy Spirit. That's not to say that the spirit was absent from the Old Testament. The spirit was certainly present. But the New Testament, I believe, is marked by the presence of the spirit in a special way. Now, here's a second point. Look at Luke 3.16. John answered and said to them all. Now the all looks to me like it goes back to verse 15, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all that I baptize you with water, but the one is coming who is mightier than I and I'm not fit to untie the thong of the sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now the fact that he says this to them all, and what he says to them all, I baptize you with water, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I think that's an indication that Jesus was going to baptize everybody John baptized. He baptizes you with water, Jesus will baptize him with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I believe it's best to understand the fire in the light of verse 17 and that Jesus baptizes either with the Holy Spirit or with fire. Either he blesses us with pouring out the Holy Spirit on us or he pours out the wrath of God on us with fire. I think it's one or the other. But but think about if it's true, as many people believe, that the only times people were baptized in the Holy Spirit were the twelve on the day of Pentecost. And whoever was in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, and Paul. Then think about it. When, when John said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, what he would have meant was, he will baptize at most twelve of you, really eleven, because Judas wasn't baptized with the Holy Spirit, maybe Matthias was there, okay, you could... So, so at most 12, were all of the 12 there listening to John at that point? I doubt it, but that'd be the maximum. I don't think you'd get Cornelius and the people in his household there. So, so at most, he baptizes 12 of you in the Holy Spirit, probably quite a few of them with a fire, and some of them with neither one. That just doesn't seem at all to be the most reasonable explanation of this passage. When I took the other view, I always struggled with this passage. I didn't ever really have a good answer for this. Uh, because it just, the natural reading of it is, I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. By the way, you can make comments or ask questions as I go through this if you want. Where did you get the whole part? I- I'm saying. You made it up. I made it up. <laughs> okay, so. 
Holy, the Holy Spirit and fire, but I think it's an either-or thing. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and he baptizes with fire. I don't think he baptizes mm-hmm. the same per- people with the Holy Spirit that he does with the fire, because I think the fire baptism in the context in verse 17 is judgment. And so it's it becomes an either-or. He does both baptisms, and he baptizes you with one or the other, it looks to me like. Um, look at Titus 3. Um You've got the passage in Acts chapter 2 where Joel is quoted as far as uh, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And I'm going to go to that for just one verse here in a moment. But look at Titus 3. This is a great statement about what God has done for us in Christ. He starts out in Titus 3, 3 talking about the before picture. And if you read Titus 3, 3, the before was ugly. But, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So I believe that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit not just on the people on the day of Pentecost, but he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us richly through Jesus Christ. Now, people struggle with that. You know, we talk about Jesus poured out the Spirit in Acts 2, for example, but that people were baptized in the Spirit. And I've heard people argue that baptism is pouring. Because he poured out the Spirit and they were baptized, so baptism and pouring is the same thing. Well, if you stop and think about it, the baptism is the effect of the pouring. We baptize people at Bargersville in a tank, in a baptistry. And we pour the water into the tank. It comes through the hose, but that's pouring the water in. And then we immerse the person in the water that's poured in. So the Holy Spirit's poured out to the point of immersing the people. It's poured out abundantly to where the person is, is overwhelmed with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. That's another way of stating that. Now look for a second at Acts 2 where he quotes the, the Joel prophecy. And, and notice that the Joel prophecy says uh, that I will pour out forth of my spirit on all mankind, not on twelve Cornelius and his house and Paul. And uh, notice verse 33 of Acts 2, Therefore, having been exalted the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then down in verse 38... Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that the logical context for this is the Joel prophecy. That's what he's been talking about, uh, and even mentioned it again in verse 33. So receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit being poured out on all mankind, just like Joel said it was. Um and, and so, and people have argued for years, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? But if we're studying Acts 2 in the context, it seems clear that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit being poured out on us, and us being baptized in the Spirit. Here's another uh, approach. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. I realize this is, uh, we're looking at several things, but the case gets stronger and stronger as you start looking at different passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 may be definitive. There's a translational question here that creates some questions. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, my margin says for the uh, uh, by one spirit or in one spirit. Now, that's a debated issue with translation. Here's the argument for it meaning by. It means by in verse 3, when he says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God, and no one uh, can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It means it in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by the one Spirit. And I'm good with translating it by in verse 3 and verse 9, and the two times it's used in both verses. But I'm not good with translating it by here in verse 13, and here's why. In every other passage that talks about baptism, this preposition means the substance you're baptized in. Whether that substance is water, in Matthew 3, Mark 1, John 1, the Jordan, in Matthew 3, Mark 1, in the cloud and in the sea, 1 Corinthians 10, but that preposition is always used for what you're baptized into. If it's talking about who baptizes you, it's always a different preposition. And that's consistent in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, Luke 7, etc. Now, if he meant, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, then what does that mean? If the Spirit is the one by whom we're baptized, what does the Spirit baptize us in? You know, that's a, you know, I don't read anywhere in the Bible about a baptism that the Spirit does to us. He he baptizes me in something. But that's what it would mean if we're looking at this as being baptized by one Spirit. So I think the in is the better translation. If the in is correct... And this is talking about the substance we're baptized in, like it does with, when it uses water or the Jordan or the cloud and the sea. Then that nails it. We're we're baptized in one spirit. Um, so that that's a, a point. Look at John three. Here's another, uh, I think, strong uh, argument in favor of that we're all baptized in the spirit. John three five. I've I've argued that I've, I've explained this wrong ways before. But Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now when we talk about somebody being born of water, what do we think that means? Baptized in water. And I agree. That's the thing that gives us a new birth. So what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? baptized in the Spirit. Now, I think those two occur at the same time. I believe when we're baptized in water, we're baptized in the Spirit. But if being born of water means baptized in water, why wouldn't being born of the Spirit mean being baptized in the Spirit? Now, here's an objection people raise. Ephesians 4 says there's one baptism. That's true, though that needs to be qualified. There have been a variety of baptisms, but there's one baptism he's thinking about in Ephesians. And I think this is the one baptism, the baptism of the water and the spirit. I believe that is one baptism composed of two elements. As we're baptized in water, we're also baptized in the spirit. I don't consider those two different baptisms. There are people who say that. There are people who say that you're baptized in the spirit first, and then later you're baptized in water. There are some people who say you're baptized in water first, and then you're baptized in the spirit. Well, I think it happens at the same time. I think it's one baptism. 
with two elements. So you're, you're baptized in both water and you're baptized in the Spirit. Uh, one more passage to prove this, and then I'll let you ask questions and make comments. Look at John 7. John seven thirty seven. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He wasn't going to pour out the Spirit until he went back to the Father. And when he does pour out the Spirit, then innermost rivers of living water flow from our innermost being. We are able to bless others by the Spirit who dwells in us. The fact of the matter is, there are a lot of different ways that the Bible speaks of being baptized in the Spirit. It speaks of the Spirit being poured out. It speaks of us drinking of the Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit, receiving the Spirit. It says the Spirit's given to us. It says we're filled with the Spirit. It says the Spirit dwells in us. I don't think they're all different things. So, what does it mean to be filled with Spirit, and how's that different from the Spirit dwelling in us, and how's that different from us receiving the Spirit, and how's that different from us drinking of the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit? I think those are all different ways of talking about the same thing. The fact is, the Spirit lives in us. The Spirit fills us. We're immersed, we're overwhelmed in the Spirit. Those are just different ways of looking at the same thing. We, when we're baptized in water, receive the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, and so that's, that's that point. Um, and there's a number of other passages, of course, that talk about the spirit filling us and dwelling in us. I may say a couple more words about that, but as far as just this idea of being baptized in the spirit and, and what we've talked about, thoughts and comments. So the alternative to that would be saying that baptizing by the Spirit, that's like the miraculous gifts and Pentecost and is limited to a certain number of people. Yes. The view that I previously taught was that, I taught it a little differently than most people do. I taught that the 120 in Acts 2 were baptized in the Spirit. And the people in Cornelius' house were baptized in the Spirit. And evidently Paul was baptized in the Spirit. And those are the only people that ever received Holy Spirit baptism. So that most people would say the twelve in Acts two, the people in Cornelius' house and, and Paul. So did you think that most Christians did not receive the Holy Spirit? Like didn't have the Spirit? I would have said they were weren't baptized in the Spirit, they received the Spirit, but it was in a different way. It wasn't the baptismal nature of the receiving the Holy Spirit. Oh, so you would have said that, you used to say that those were different things. Yes. Now you're saying that they're the same. Exactly. Thing. It's really a terminology issue to some extent as far as what I've said so far. Right. I'm saying what other people call other things, I think is being baptized in the Spirit. And I think when we look at those passages, that we can call what happens to us is we're baptized in the Spirit. Okay, well, we could also call it receiving the Spirit and, and should. having it. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of ways of speaking about that. But when John speaks here that you, he baptizes you and the Holy Spirit in fire, I think he's talking about the way we all receive the Spirit when we're baptized into Christ. Okay, but you would, you're ending up at the same place either way. I am so far. I'm, I, I am for so people. I am for people who believe the Spirit really does have some connection with us. There will be some people who might even deny that. 
But but yes, I I am. I, this is more terminology so far. Okay. Are you getting to a point where it's not just terminology? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Okay. Yeah, but we're about to get there. Um, let me suggest this, and this will transition into another point I want to make about the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit's living in us is a progressive thing. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about we were strangers and aliens in verse 19, but we're built together on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And look at verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I believe progressively we are being built into a temple, that that the Spirit is filling us more and more, and living in us, and directing us more and more. So I don't think this is, you either were baptized in the Spirit or you weren't, and that's it. You got the Spirit, and you got it. I believe we allow the Spirit to fill us up more and more. I would suggest Acts 4. Here you've got the apostles that clearly, on everybody's view, received the Holy Spirit, were baptized in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But in Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word with boldness. Well, I thought they'd already been filled with the Spirit. I mean, that's what it says in Acts 2. This is kind of a refill, I guess. But I think it's the idea that we can be even fuller of the Spirit. The Spirit can dwell in us in an even greater way. So I don't know that we always ought to think of it as an either-or thing. I think the Spirit comes to dwell in us more and more as we allow that to happen. Um, and, And really, once you understand all this, it's like, where does the New Testament not talk about Holy Spirit baptism? Almost everywhere. But I want to come to another point then. What role does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? Because I think we've often said, okay, we have some connection with the Holy Spirit, but I have not done a good job of talking about the Holy Spirit and what he does for us. And and so we can say, yeah, we got the Holy Spirit, but, you know, there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, and I think we just need to give full weight to the, what the New Testament says. And the New Testament says a ton about what the Holy Spirit does. I'm going to give you a sample. There's a lot more than this. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I believe the spirit raises us from the dead. It's the spirit that dwells in us. The same one that raised Jesus from the dead raises our mortal bodies from the dead. So there's something the spirit does for us. I think he raises us from the dead. We already probably know, I'm not going to go into this, but Romans 8, 26 and 27 talks about how the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to express our thoughts to God in prayer. We've generally said that one, I think, but that is important. Look at Galatians 4. Here's something else the Holy Spirit does for us. And on all these, we could bring other passages to bear. Um, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
I believe the Spirit gives an awareness that we are God's children. The Spirit comes into our heart crying, Abba, Father. You've also got Romans 8 on that point. Romans 8, verse 15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's another translational question. I think the better translation is the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're children of God. But at any rate, he brings to us an awareness and a consciousness of being God's children. Um, Galatians 5, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? But we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, love. But do we ever talk about the fruit of the Spirit? You know, it's like... We, we talk about it all the time, but we never connect it with the Spirit. But this is the fruit that the Spirit's bearing in my life as the Spirit dwells in me in Galatians 5. That's the whole point of this chapter, really. You know, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, that's Galatians 5.18, you're not under the law. And uh, he will go on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. That's two verses after the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so, So the Spirit bears fruit in us. This is not an inactive spirit. The spirit produces those things. So when I have, you know, joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, shouldn't I give credit to the Holy Spirit for that instead of saying, boy, haven't I done a bang-up job with my love here lately? You know, the spirit is bearing fruit in my life. I believe that's a biblical way of thinking about that. Um, look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 is a prayer of Paul. And he prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and so forth. I believe we're strengthened in the inner man with power by the spirit. The spirit strengthens us. And not strengthens us like builds our muscles, but strengthens our spiritual muscles, strengthens us in the inner man. Um, look at Romans 8 again. Romans 8 is a great chapter for the Spirit. You just got some key chapters in the Bible on the Holy Spirit. And, uh, Galatians 8 and, and, uh, Galatians 5 and Romans 8 are two of them. I'll get those right in a minute. Uh, so Romans 8. Look at verse, uh, 13. Where they start in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we know the importance of putting to death the deeds of the body, right? We're talking about the fleshly works, the sinful behaviors. But how many times do we try to put those to death by ourselves? And what he says we ought to do is you put them to death by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one through whom we're able to kill those deeds of the body. Maybe we've not done a very good job of that because we've tried to do it without the Spirit. But it's through the Spirit that we do that. One more concept, and then I'll stop here on this and just answer questions or offer comments. But um, look at 2 Corinthians 5, 5. I believe that the Spirit that we have is a pledge of future blessings we will have. He says in verse uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us, 
who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. I believe what we have in the Spirit right now is like the guarantee, it's like the down payment of the greater blessings we will receive. You've got the same thing in Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, with praise of his glory. So I believe the Holy Spirit... Uh, is the pledge of our inheritance. He He's the down payment. He guarantees we're going to get all the rest of it by the blessings we've gotten from the Spirit. Let me say one thing I don't think the Spirit does, that many people think He does. And that is, I don't believe that the Spirit reveals to us additional in, uh, information from God, that he, he He gives us more teaching, more doctrine. I believe that the the... Uh, revelation of God's will was completed in the first century. And so if somebody says, oh, you know, the Spirit told me that it's okay to be sprinkled. Well, I don't think that was the Spirit that told him that. I believe the Spirit has already finished his revealing work. So I don't believe the Spirit tells me things that supplement God's revelation or that alter it in some way. That's not something that I see the Spirit doing for us. But but there's many things the New Testament has the Spirit doing, and I think we need to see it more that way and think about it that way. All right, that was a lot, but I wanted to say all that. Thank you for listening, and what are your questions and comments? What's the Spirit do again? <laughs> All right, so the Spirit raises us from the dead. The Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. The Spirit gives us an awareness of being God's children. The Spirit produces fruit. The Spirit strengthens our inner man. The Spirit, uh, uh, through the Spirit, we're able to put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, the Spirit is a pledge of future blessings. And I think that's just a sample. There's other things the Spirit does, obviously. So is there any... What I say? What's what's wrong? I mean, is it bad not to acknowledge the Spirit doing these things? What you know? How? What's the practical thing in our lives if we haven't been doing that or acknowledging that? Well, it may depend on what we've been doing or acknowledging. I think a lot of people don't think of the Lord's involvement. Let's just put it that way, in the broad sense, in their life. I'm going to beat sin on my own. I'm going to produce fruit on my own. I'm going to get this done on my own. Now, if somebody was attributing these things to Jesus or to God, well, that's true also. The Bible says a lot about what Jesus does for us, what God does for us. So it's not like if somebody was understanding the role Jesus has in their life, then I don't think they're going to come to a radically different thing. There may be a few specific things the Spirit does that Jesus isn't said to do or God isn't said to do. But I think the most important thing is recognizing we're not on our own. Uh, Besides that, then I think we just need to speak where the Bible speaks and we need to say it the way the Bible says it. And I realize, I've just felt for years, I don't really understand the Holy Spirit, so I'm not going to talk about it. And I realize I've been wrong in that, really. I mean, I need to say what the Bible says, even if I don't understand Because when I don't do that, then I'm just really not, I'm not teaching what the Bible's teaching. I'm not saying it the way the Bible's saying it. Now, trying to get exactly the balance the Bible has, that's a challenge. But I think that's our goal. Would 
which that's not the only topic in the Bible where we do that, where we can't comprehend. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> we, we may tend not to speak about things we don't understand, and that's a problem. We right. need to say what the Bible says about it, even if we don't understand everything. Or, or we try to put it in our own terms and make it fit our physical world somehow. Right. If, yeah. And we try to oversimplify or over overexplain. You know, because if, if, I mean, clearly if you ask me, how does the spirit put to death the deeds of the body? I can't answer that. But if you ask me, how does Jesus strengthen us? Or how does God do this? And how does God answer prayer? You know, and so forth and so on. There's all kinds of things. I don't know the answer to that. But do I need to know the how to believe the what? brought to mind some truth that was in the Bible. So, like, the Spirit prompted me to, you know, think of this passage that I should have been doing, or to do this good deed that I should do. I do think that's biblical, if it is a good deed, and something that God authorizes. I would look at 2 Corinthians 8, which isn't the Spirit specifically, but it's the Lord. But Second Corinthians eight sixteen. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. That's just really interesting. We put that earnestness in Titus's heart. Uh, so it's not specifically the Spirit, but that's the idea. Really, one of the things that helped me, you know, I I, I worked on this more because oh, year two years ago maybe I taught or a year ago maybe, I taught this at a preacher's study in Bowling Green. Um, and so I worked on it a lot. And I was determined, you know, I've got to understand this better. And when I started really looking at, okay, what all does the Holy Spirit said to do? It's like, wait a minute. I already believe that God does most of these things. I mean, and I'd say that. Well, then why couldn't I say the Spirit does it? I mean, you know, it made me realize this is not such a, you know, weird thing or different thing. Now, I, I, again, I would say a lot of people wouldn't say that God even does those things. I think we struggle to maybe give the credit to the Lord, at least I have, that I should, and, and really, you know, say what I should. But back to your question, Mindy, I mean, you have those passages where people blame God for things he didn't do. Like when Saul said, God's given, you know, David in my hand, or when David's men said, you know, God's giving Saul into your hand, or whatever. No, that's not what God was doing. Or where somebody today say, oh, you know, God brought this wonderful man into my life so that I can divorce my terrible husband and marry him. You know, things like that. Well, clearly not. You know, so we can we can say God did something that the Bible would say, no, God's not responsible for that. And sometimes people will do that so they feel better about something wrong they want to do. And so we shouldn't do that. But if it's something that clearly God would do, then I think we can give him the credit. No, like some people will say, like the Spirit, like I heard the Spirit say to me, like go look up, you know, Second Corinthians 9. Or, and most Christians that I know would be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like the Spirit doesn't do that. I don't, I don't see where the Spirit does that for us. But the principle of... But the, the spirit, spirit may bring something to my mind. But, you know, if I start hearing voices in my head, I don't know that that's the Spirit. Uh, but but I, I think it's perfectly appropriate 
to think that, that God put something in my heart, that God brought something to my mind, as long as I'm not like, well, you know, the passage God put in my mind is this. This must be the definitive passage on this subject or something right. like that. Right. You know, maybe, maybe you were just reasoning on your own there. So yeah. I think, I think we're careful yeah. not to like define the truth by what comes to my mind. Right. But if it's something, if, if I have a good impulse, to credit that to the Lord, yes. I mean, really, it comes from him, even if it comes indirectly from him. And I, I don't see any particular reason to think it can't come directly from him. It's just so much easier to have a concrete idea of the Son and the Father. Uh, you, know, you can understand the role of the Father as king and the authority and that we want to get home to be with him and see him. And the son as like, you know, our example, as the mediator, as the path to the father. It's it's almost like the spirit is so much closer to us that we we can't see it. Um, like you know, he's working through us. It, it, I mean, we I think we think of it as, you know, being just so vague and nebulous, I have no idea, but it's that's not because He's far off, but because you know, he's just doing so much, it's invisible to us in some ways. Yes, good point. It's good almost point. easier, I've always thought, to give the Father and the Son a bodily form and the Spirit's kind of a vapor. <laughs> right, right. Because we really don't see a bodily form of the Spirit like we do Jesus, at least. Right, or even God on the throne, sitting right. on the throne. Right, we have more bodily images regarding him. We, we do see the spirit around the throne or the you know, different things, but not in a bodily Yeah, there's a lot less action. of that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, there's a passage in Ephesians 2.22, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Is there a sense in which God dwells Maybe. in us through the spirit? You know, I don't know that that's the case. When I was uh, in college, I preached in a church in western Indiana a few times, and there was a brother there that vehemently declared in this passage that the way God dwells in us is by the Spirit dwelling in us. That God doesn't dwell in us directly. It's the Spirit that dwells in us, and he dwells in us through the Spirit. I'm not sure I want to say all that, but it may be that there's a sense in which God's closer connection with us is through the Spirit. Well, I think that it's not just that, although that's, you know, I can see where you could say that, but it's growing into a holy temple uh, and being built into a dwelling of God, you know, I think is the idea we're growing to have God dwell in us more and more. That, that, but I can see where you could think, well, we're just, we're just growing the building God dwells in. But I think it's growing to become more and more a place where God dwells.
At, at any rate, you've got the idea of being filled with the Spirit, and even exhortations to be filled with the Spirit. But you're already filled with the Spirit if you're a Christian. So that, that also gives the idea of that progressive nature of the Spirit's dwelling in us. I would use those passages instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, could be. I've used this one for a long time that way, but, but you know, that may be wrong. Other questions or comments? I knew that would be a significant detour. I thought that was something I wanted to get on the web and a good place to do it. So thank you for letting me do that. Uh, so back to uh, chapter 3 of Luke then, uh, verses 21 and 22. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized and while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. Thou art my beloved son and thee I am well pleased. Okay. Well, uh, this is the culmination of John's work, though it's really after we've locked John up in prison we read about this, but we're now looking at it from Jesus' perspective. You know, so Jesus was baptized and was praying when some really incredible stuff happened. You know, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove, and this voice comes out of heaven saying, You're my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, there's a great passage to help us see there is some distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son's praying, the Spirit's descending, and the Father's speaking. And they're not even in the same place, you know, at that point. The Father's in heaven, the Spirit's descending, and Jesus is just uh, uh, coming up out of the water. Uh, so there, there's clearly a distinction there, and that's a good passage to see that. But do you see the role, then, that the Spirit has in Jesus' life? You know, the Spirit comes upon or comes into Jesus at this point, and we can't hardly get away from that after that. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. And 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then he quotes from Isaiah 61 in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, and so the, the role of the Spirit in the life of Jesus is a key element of what Luke is teaching. And of course, you realize in my judgment, Luke was writing Luke with an eye to Acts. Now, maybe that's just the inspiration that was doing that. But you see so many things that are parallel between Luke and Acts. And one of them is, you see how both Jesus began his ministry with the Spirit descending upon him, and the apostles began their ministry with the Spirit descending upon them. There's a number of statements in the prophets that will connect the Spirit with Jesus as well. Isaiah 42, 1, for example. The other thing you see is the Father's statement. You're my beloved Son. In you I'm well pleased. And that's a theme that's woven into these paragraphs. Uh, you have the Son of God at the end of the chapter. And then you have the devil, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, kind of basing the temptation on his sonship. But, but this begins with God affirming... He's my son. God takes the initiative to reveal that he is happy with Jesus. He's his beloved son. And uh, interesting that all this happens when Jesus is praying. You know, Luke tends to mention prayer quite a bit. 
and he tends to mention him at special uh, moments in Jesus' life. Comments and questions on all that. So if we need to think of the spirit in bodily form, we could think about the time that he appeared as a dove. Good point. Yeah. And I always question that because it says, because people always say, oh, the spirit looked like a dove. No, it says it descended like a dove. Well, I mean, it could have something like a dad. Otherwise, it could have been like a dad. Well, it could have like that. That's like a dad. It could have looked like anything. <laughs> I think if it had looked like an octopus, it would have said it descended like an octopus. Then <laughs> it would have been falling. <laughs> Now, my translation said descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. Ah. Right. So the form was like a dove. See, I don't necessarily read it that way. Yeah. So who knows? He descended descended in bodily form, and he descended like a dove. Maybe. It could go either way. Like, it's not... It's not... Spoken like a father's daughter. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that that would be my opinion as well, that he appeared in some dove-type appearance. Uh, but, you know, exactly how that was, who knows. Uh, there was something that was visible, though, because it was John saw the spirit came on him, so there was some visible form. And while this wouldn't be a definitive passage for that, we have an example of someone receiving the spirit as they were baptized. So that goes along nicely with the other things that we were saying. But not that I would use this passage to teach it. Right, because it's not the same thing. But yeah, it is interesting. You have that correspondence. So then, verse 23, when he began his uh, ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and so forth. Um... It's interesting that he's about 30 years old. I don't know how close that about is. I think it's a little easier to fit chronologically if he's about 30 and a few more. You know, 31, 32, 33 may make it a little easier for us. And that's about 30, so that may be the case. Um, like I'm about 40. Uh, not probably true. not like that. Probably a little more accurate. Um, the priests in certain eras, at least, began their work at 30. David began his reign at 30. I don't know if either of those are in Luke's mind uh, as far as that's concerned. And then he gives his uh, ancestry. You know, all the way from Joseph right back to Adam, the son of God. Um, there's a lot of things we'll say about this. And I'll extend this for the next time, too. But do you, anybody count it up how many there are? I'm going to guess 49. 77. Yeah, which is interesting with the sevenness of everything in the Bible. Uh, This is quite different from Matthew's genealogy. Um, For one thing, it goes all the way back. Matthew's genealogy just goes to Abraham. And Matthew turns it the other way. We start with Abraham and go down. Here we start with Jesus and go back up, which is unique. I don't think there is... I don't think there is another genealogy in the Bible uh, that goes that direction, but I may be wrong. But at least the typical thing is to go so-and-so begat, begat, begat. So you go from the father down to the son. 
But of course, the focal point of this genealogy is Jesus. That's the really the key element. You know, normally you think of, you know, maybe uh, the son gains his significance from his ancestors. But here the ancestors gain their significance from the son. Thoughts and comments about that? Alright, so um, you've got se- several different phases of this. You've got Joseph back to David. And this is basically unique in the Joseph to David line. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next time. Then you've got David back to Abraham, which parallels Matthew 1, except in reverse order. And then you've got that part from Abraham back to Adam, which basically repeats genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. So the real unique part of this is from Joseph to David, which is also the challenging part of it, because why didn't why weren't the same ancestors in Matthew from David to Jesus as there would be in Luke? Uh, and there's a lot of questions about that, and I think I'll just leave it at that. And uh, we'll work on that uh, next uh, week and, and start with kind of some of those ideas and, and some more stuff that we can learn from this genealogy. Questions that come up? Did David even have a something? He did. Uh, it's somewhere. I don't know where, but I think it's somewhere. We just memorized all the genealogies in First Chronicles. That was a uh, useless endeavor. You're the one that suggested it on the. I did that tongue in cheek. Oh. Could nobody see my tongue? I got my tongue in the wrong place. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know where Nathan is, David's son, but it, it's, it's mentioned in Zechariah. But oh, yeah. that's not where you find out. First Chronicles 3. Okay. Zechariah 12 has uh, the family of David by itself and the house of Nathan by itself. And, uh, Zechariah twelve twelve, so that's another reference. You mean Nathan David? Yes, I think so. Not one of the problems. One of the questions with the genealogy then. Alright. I'm getting all kinds of messages. Sure. Can you stop it?